I enjoyed uh, those songs, Chad. In fact, over there, I saw somebody doing the shoveling, the death from the grave on the... Uh, Lord, I lift your name on high. I saw a couple of people doing the old camp motion, so I enjoyed that this morning. Today, if you look at your bulletins, uh, the picture, if you look at the picture back here behind me, you're going to see that our theme is going to deal with preparing for Passover. Now, I assume that I, the majority of our audience, if not all, uh, is not a Jewish audience, and therefore does not observe the Jewish festival of Passover for the most part. But that doesn't mean that this is a foreign concept to us. It's still something that we do from time to time. After all, when we see Jesus in later in today's passage that we're going to read, he's not just preparing for Passover. What he's really preparing for is his death. You see, Passover is going to, uh, his crucifixion is going to happen on the night of the first night of the Passover festival. And so his last Passover on earth is going to be the moment that sets in motion what becomes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which would become the foundational, the fundamental, the history-changing moments for the Christian faith. And we still celebrate those events today for the impact that they have had. So we still prepare for those things. Maybe you and I would call it preparing for Holy Week, preparing for Easter more than we would Passover, but the idea is the same. After all, Jesus couldn't prepare for Easter, right? Because those events had not taken place yet. In fact, the Christian observance of Lent, if you're familiar with the 40-day observance of Lent, it's especially in Catholic churches, but lots of other denominations participate in and celebrate in Lent in various ways. And that's basically for the purpose of preparing our hearts for what is to come when we celebrate the events of the Passover, the crucifixion, the resurrection, of Jesus. And so um, Lent is one of those ways for Christians to kind of celebrate, to kind of walk toward those events. Let me give you an example of one of these things. Let me show you what has been up in my kitchen since the beginning of March at our house. My wife, Emmy, watches uh, children and she loves a project. So we, this is two walls of our kitchen. This is a path. You can't really tell from this picture, but this is a path of scripture verses that obviously we only got so much room. So it had to go all the way around the wall hangings and, you know, loop back around. Look at the next, uh, the next picture. It, Jesus is there. Each of these blocks that looks like a block on that path is a different scripture verse. And so Emmy cut out all these things and put them on the wall. And she watches kids throughout the day. And so what you do is you move the little Jesus figure to the next day. And you, whatever passage that is, you read that passage. Emmy gets out her Bible and reads to the kids that passage. And it walks you through the Gospels and it prepares you. And you can tell where it's going. It's walking toward the tomb. Jesus is going day by day to the tomb, and the kids love that kind of stuff. And yet what you're doing, what she's doing with them is 
preparing them so that when Easter comes, we don't just have a one day where there's eggs and all this stuff that's taken their attention, but we have talked about, we have been intentional about preparing for what's coming. And that's really what the Lent uh, tradition is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, let's just not celebrate Easter, the one day that gave us life, and just kind of have one big holiday. Let's, let's draw this out. Let's prepare for what's to come. And by the way, we're preparing for Easter around here at Nineveh as well. Uh, any church I've ever been a part of, Easter Sunday has always been the biggest Sunday of the year. People that you don't get in church the rest of the year, they come out on Easter. They're, they want to see what's going on on Easter Sunday because even for them, that's the day that we celebrate what we believe. And so we're asking you, if we're talking about preparation, we're asking you to help us prepare. Terry's going to ask you later to invite some people to come with you to think about, don't just don't just celebrate on Easter Sunday and say, oh, it's Easter, let's go to church. Let's think about what we're doing as we worship the resurrection of the Lord. We want you to think about how you can invite people, how you can make um, plans for being here on the biggest day of the year. Last year, I looked it up, we had like 1,580 for three services in Easter weekend. And so you're probably going to, you know what you're going to need to do first? Scoot your hind ends a little bit into the seats. Can I say hind ends? Is that all right? Uh-oh. No, no, I can't. Sorry about that. Um, you're going to scoot together and, and, and look and see that there's other people here that need seats. Or maybe if you're able-bodied, why don't you park further away than you usually do so that other people can have those spots? Why don't you look around and help us welcome the crowds we're going to have? That's some of the ways that we participate. Also, this uh, if you're interested in helping, normally, in, unless I preach, I wear one of those big, ugly orange shirts that says Connect Team on it. Um, you can, if you want to help us on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, if you'd like to help serve and, and, help, and, and, and help our visitors, we're going to have a quick meeting this Wednesday night in the fellowship hall, 530. Uh, if you're interested in helping with a parking team on those Sundays, if you're interested in helping with whatever's needed, find me and, and we'd be happy for you to help us as we prepare for Easter. That's what we're talking about today. We're talking about preparing for Passover. Obviously, again, Jesus didn't have Easter Sunday, but Jesus had the biggest festival of the year for the Jews was the festival of Passover. It's when they celebrated that the uh, angel of death passed over them and God spared the Israelites in Egypt. And so as we take a look at our passage of Scripture for today, we're going to find Jesus and his disciples... In the final days before the Jewish Passover festival, and we're going to see how Jesus prepared for Passover. And even more, we're going to see how did those following Jesus prepare for Passover. So let's start today in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, and it'll be here on, your, on the screen as well to follow along with. Matthew 26, start with verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're going to look at a key passage today, as, as I always try to do, but we're going to do it in, in, a, in a unique way. It's, it's the next line in your notes if you're following along in your fill the blanks. Here's the way we're going to structure today's sermon. Today's passage is one story from three perspectives. One story from three perspectives. It's the same story, but we're looking at it at different angles. That's really what the Gospels are. The four Gospel books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The truth is they all tell the same story. They are the accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and yet all of them are told from different perspectives. Back in 2008, I like movies, I like action movies. In 2008, an action movie came out that I really enjoyed. It was called Vantage Point. Anybody ever remember seeing this? Oh, it doesn't matter. Just raise your hand. I can see some of you. Oh, yeah, you've seen it. Sure, I knew that. Um, you all aren't paying attention. Um, the, the movie, the movie was Vantage Point, and, and it was the idea of, of an assassination attempt. The president of the United States was in Spain giving a speech, and somebody tries to kill him. That's not really what was, what was interesting to me. The, the interesting part was they told this story from eight different points of view. Uh, they told the same story, they showed some of the same events, the same moments before, but they would tell it from the point of view of the president. And then you'd switch and it would be uh, the Secret Service agent and his side of the story. And then it would be the, the, uh, a tourist that was there from America and had a camera and caught the stuff that was going on. And then, you know, you'd see the assassin and what was going on. And, and, and so you saw the same story. It was not telling you anything new, and yet... As all these perspectives showed the same story, you started to see more information. You started to see the different sides of the story open up. I remember uh, it was a really, um, I, I really, that movie just stuck with me. And so I bought the DVD. Remember when you used to buy DVDs of, of movies? Um, and I bought the DVD and I put it on my shelf. And when Emmy, my wife, and I were dating... We were looking at, you know, what movies do you have? What movies do you like? We were talking about that stuff. And I brought up Vantage Point. That's, that's one of those I really like. And she said, oh, I've seen that movie. She didn't care for it. She didn't. That was, that was not a kind of movie that she, that she liked. So we haven't watched that together since. That's kind of the way the Gospels are written. It's the same story of Jesus. These guys are not telling different Jesus narratives. But they, each book is quite different because it's told from a different perspective. For example, Matthew writes with a Jewish audience in mind and includes things like the genealogy of Jesus at the very beginning of the book. He goes from Jesus and traces his lineage all the way back to Adam. Uh, Mark, on the other hand, is like, a, let's get to the point. Mark is, the, let's just tell what Jesus did. What, what miracles did he perform? Who did he heal? Where did he go? It was an action-based gospel. Uh, Mark starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. He doesn't do any of that early stuff. Mark starts where Jesus' ministry starts with John 
the Baptist. Uh, Luke's gospel dives into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of the gospel. Luke is the one that tells us the majority of the stuff we know about the Christmas story. He starts even with uh, the angels appearing to, to Elizabeth and Mary and telling them ahead of time the things that are going to happen. Because Luke wasn't here when these events were taking place. Luke was going back and gathering eyewitness details from people that knew what was going on. And so Luke's is another, another perspective altogether. And then you've got the Gospel of John. John's is different from the first three altogether. We call the first three the synoptic Gospels because they kind of, they, they kind of record the same events for the most part with a lot of differences, but they kind of are, are like they're seen through the same lens. John's is a completely different Gospel that is done um, more for theological purposes, it looks like, more to explain the, the spiritual significance to the things that are happening. And J John, in other words, in, instead of starting with Christmas, instead of starting with the angels' announcements or the genealogy with Jesus, John goes back spiritually to the beginning when he says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's why when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see four different accounts of the same story. And sometimes you might wonder why some things are included and some things aren't. I could spend days asking questions about why does John not put this in there, but, but he puts this in there. We could talk about what the reasons are for those things, what the perspective is for each of these men, and, and what their purposes were in their writing. But let me just leave it here with this verse in, from John 21. John says this. This is the last thing he says in his gospel. John 21, 25, John says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them was written down, I suppose that even the whole world wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have room for the books that would be written. And so Jesus had a three-year ministry. Jesus' life was 30 years or so before that. And so Everything that happened, unfortunately, is not recorded. These guys had limited means to do so back then. They weren't able to, they, they, they didn't have the uh, availability to write down these things like we do today. And so what we have, I think, is what we need. Uh, we're told in Scripture that we have everything we need, but maybe not every question, maybe not every uh, curiosity we have about the Gospels is told simply because there's too much to include. So sometimes you get it in some of these books, and sometimes we're left to wonder. And so today, as we look at the account, this encounter that we read from Matthew 26, this woman that anoints Jesus with the perfume, we're actually going to do it by looking at three of the four Gospels that record this story. Uh, in, in the four Gospels, three of them record the woman perfume story that we just read from Matthew chapter 26. It's those, those three are on the bottom of your picture here as well. So we've already seen what Matthew 26 has to say. Let's look at the second account, this time the account from Mark. Mark 14 verses 3 through 9 tells us the same story. Let's see how Mark says it. While he was in Bethany, Jesus uh, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were there were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. 
Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Much of Mark's account sounds like Matthew's. And overall, Matthew and Mark are very similar and are more similar in some ways than some of the other gospels are. They have many similarities. Both Matthew and Mark tell us, for example, that Jesus was in Bethany, that Jesus was at the home of Simon the leper, that a woman came to Jesus with an alabaster jar of some very expensive perfume. Uh, Mark uses the word, or uh, yeah, Mark uses the word nard, which means nothing. I really don't know what nard is, but it was very expensive. Uh, Matthew and Mark both say they, she poured it on Jesus' head and that the, Jesus' disciples did not care for this. And they both, in both accounts, they say that the disciples are worried. They're, they're throwing a fit about the cost of this perfume. And both Matthew and Mark say, re, they end with Jesus saying something like this, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, this woman, has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus in both Matthew and Mark makes a pretty big deal out of what is happening here in this short little scene as we're preparing for the Passover festival. See, John the son of Zebedee, if we're moving on to the next account, John records the same account in his Gospel of John. But as we read it, you're going to notice a few more differences and a few more details filled in by what John says. In fact, a couple of those blanks and differences are going to be in the Scripture, so pay attention to them as we go along. Let's see how John tells this same story in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, it says, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then, verse 3, then Mary, she's in your notes, took about a pint of pure nard, there it is again, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped, it her, whoo, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples... Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, the keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me, Jesus says. We mentioned before that John's gospel is recorded for what you might call theological purposes. In other words, he seems to include a lot of the spiritual reasons behind what 
why Jesus came and what Jesus did. And he dives into spiritual discussions more than the other three gospels do. For example, the the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where we get John 3.16, where Jesus is explaining being born again, and he, he is explaining why God sent Christ to the earth. It's foundational to the Christian faith. Only John records that encounter. It's not found in Matthew or Mark or Luke. Similarly, when you jump to the next chapter, chapter 4, John uh, provides an encounter where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well. And he says to her, they have another spiritual discussion. And he says, one day you will, those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. Only John records that encounter with that woman. What's interesting also to me is in the previous chapter to what we're reading today, we're in John chapter 12. Do you know what happens in John chapter 11? It's another story that only is recorded in John. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now that one gets me. Obviously, nobody asked me to write one of the accounts of the gospels, but I got to think that that Jesus's best friend, one of Jesus's best friends, also being raised to life weeks before Jesus' resurrection would probably be something you'd want to put in there, right? That'd be noteworthy enough to include, and yet Matthew and Mark and Luke leave it out, while John mentions that that also may be part of the reason why John sets the stage a little more for us in his account, uh, because the other three don't tell us who's there. They don't tell us who's at this scene, but John does. And part of why John does is the previous chapter, we've already seen these people, Martha and Lazarus and Mary. John says that that while Mary is about to come and anoint Jesus' feet, and Lazarus, you know, bless his heart, he was just dead not very long ago. He's just reclining at the table with Jesus. He's taking it easy. Martha, bless Martha's heart, she's in the kitchen. She's serving food. She's taking care of everybody. John tells us these details because those are people that we would know from the previous story in John chapter 11. And so while John includes a lot of these spiritually important moments, there's also some things he does, he leaves out. For example, the transfiguration. To me, that's a pretty big spiritual moment and John doesn't include it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, and John leaves it out. It would be impossible for us to know why some things are included in some accounts and some are not. In today's story, while Matthew and Mark give us the highlights of this woman coming and anointing Jesus' feet, John kind of fills in some of the details. We've already mentioned, he says Lazarus was there. Lazarus is, is reclining with Jesus now. Martha is serving the crowd. And he includes two people that Matthew and Mark don't mention. So let's look at them in your notes today. Let's see what John's account includes. The first one that we're going to mention is Mary of Bethany. That's the line in your notes. This is Mary of Bethany. Now I I make that uh, distinction because there's multiple Marys in in the gospel accounts. Obviously Mary Magdalene, obviously Mary the mother of Jesus is one of those. Um, John mentions this Mary specifically. And this is the same Mary. You can leave that up. I'm about to come to it. This is the same Mary in chapter 11 whose brother Lazarus 
is eventually raised from the dead. In fact, look what he says. Look what John says in the very beginning of John chapter 11, verse 2. John says, before any of this happens, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. John 11, verse 2, John hasn't told any of either of those stories yet. Lazarus raising from the dead, Mary anointing Jesus with oil, and yet he wants to tell us already that these are one and the same, that this Mary is the same Mary. The one whose brother is about to be raised is, is next chapter about to be the one who's going to honor Jesus with this perfume. There's one more story. I've kind of already alluded to it a little bit, but there's one more story in the scriptures about this particular Mary of Bethany. Do you remember what it, what it is? Not the perfume and not the brother being raised from the dead. There's one more scene that involves Mary and her sister Martha. You know what I'm talking about? Do you know which one gospel account records that story? It's not John, it's Luke. It's the guy that, that doesn't even include the other one with the perfume. So let's look at what Luke says. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. This is the same Mary. At, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do this work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. When I read this story, and there's been times that Terry has preached it, that, um, no offense, Terry, but we've talked about it afterwards. Some of those, uh, I remember having a conversation with Jatana and a couple of those that uh, we always talk about. I, if I'm being honest, I'm a Martha. I'm the guy that's back in the back doing all the stuff while everybody else can come and serve and everybody, you know, come and worship. I'm back cooking the meals. I'm doing the dishes. And so sometimes I have to read that, that passage to remind me that Mary, is doing the right thing. Mary is, is while everything is going on around them, even in, in John chapter 12, even then, he says, Martha's doing what? Martha's serving. But Mary, two times now, comes and sits at the feet of Jesus. She had chosen the better things. The second person that John involves in this account it's not mentioned specifically in Matthew or Mark. He's the next one in your notes. Is Judas Iscariot the betrayer? I think it's interesting that John calls out which disciple, in fact, had a problem with this, with this perfume being wasted the way that it was. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' 12 original disciples. He's mentioned as early as Mark chapter 3 where Mark mentions all 12 of these guys by name. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. <clears throat> Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. 
Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom they gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Then you have Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and then verse 19 says the last one, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Mark tells us early on, long before Jesus' final days of life are recorded, that Judas is going to be the one who would betray Jesus. Here's another interesting thing. If you look at the Matthew account and the Mark account of today's story, if you read the next two verses in both of those books, do you know what you're going to find? It's another account that involves this same disciple, Judas Iscariot. In fact, let's look at what Matthew and Mark record immediately after we see today's story. Look at it first in Matthew 26, verses 14 through 15. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. Here's how Mark records it again, right after the story we've read today. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. And so do you know what, Jesus, what Judas did? So he watched for an opportunity to hand them over. See, Matthew and Mark both include this event immediately after the woman anointing Jesus with perfume. They don't tell us that it's Judas who, who objects. John tells us that. But they go out and tell us, you know what Judas did next? He started to watch for an opportunity to hand his master over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. John doesn't include that. Again, that's one of those who in the world knows why these guys did what they did through the inspiration of the Spirit. But you know what John includes? I think this is incredible. John includes instead of Judas going out and arranging for his betrayal, John says something that is only found in the Gospel of John, and it's about Lazarus. He says that the chief priests and the teachers of the law, after this whole meal at Simon the leper's house, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Has this guy not been through enough already? They want to kill Lazarus again. So let's remember for a second that all of this is taking place as Jesus and his disciples are preparing for Passover. In fact, if you look back at the beginning of Matthew 26, where we read our first account, if you look at the very first five verses, you'll see Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's coming. Look at Matthew 26, 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. You think this was a surprise to them? Jesus has explicitly said what's going to happen. But then look what happens in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of all the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. See, Jesus has already told his disciples what's coming. He's doing his best to prepare them for the things that are going to happen, not just for the Passover festival, but for his death 
and his burial and his resurrection. In fact, lots of people are doing lots of things in these scenes to prepare for what will end up being Jesus' last nights on earth. Now remember, Matthew, Mark, and John... These are the three Gospels that record this woman coming in preparation and and putting perfume on Jesus. But the Gospel of Luke, while he doesn't include that particular encounter, he does give us some interesting information right around this time about what's going on as Jesus and his disciples are preparing for Passover. Look at Luke 22, this time verses 1 through 8. Luke says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. This is a thing that Luke alone tells us. Look what he says. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, (coughs) excuse me, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for the opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John out saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. See, not everyone is aware of it, but it's clear from all four Gospels that Jesus is about to lay down his life for the sins of the world. The wheels of this this big cosmic spiritual significant event are already in motion. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were already looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. Luke says that Satan has already entered Jesus in his preparations for what is about to come and what is about to happen. Jesus is even even asking his disciples to go and find a house, to find a place, a room for them to be able to celebrate the Passover together. Everyone is finding his or her own ways of celebrating this world-changing event, even if they don't know what's around the corner. But as we close today, as we draw this to a conclusion, I want us to look specifically at how two of these people in this scene, how do they go about preparing for what's coming? Let's start with Judas. Let's start with Judas Iscariot. How does he prepare? Look at your notes. Judas prepared for what was coming by what? By watching for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Did you notice that in John's, uh, in Luke's account that we just read? Look again at Luke 22, 6. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Eventually, he's going to wait until Jesus and the disciples have gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane to betray Jesus. Look at Matthew 26, verse 16. It says, from then on, from that moment on, when the woman had anointed Jesus with the perfume, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas is preparing, right, for what's coming. But he's doing it by looking for a way to betray his master. 
the one that he spent three years following. And then look at Mary. Look at the next person here in this scene that John mentions. Mary of Bethany. How does she prepare for what is coming? It's in your notes. Mary prepared by preparing Jesus for burial. Let's read the encounter from John again where we have uh, this two sides of the story thing going on. John says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, was later, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. John, of course, gives us this detail. He says he did not say this because he cared about the poor or because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Then Jesus says, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Look at the difference here between Judas and Mary. Judas sees this perfume as a waste. It doesn't make sense, right? This could have been a a year's worth of wages. And yeah, John calls him a thief, but he was also the keeper of the money bag. And so anybody, if anybody would know how much they had, you know, for, for their ministry and for their expenses, it would be Judas. He's keeping an eye on what it is they have. And so he sees this not as something that should be poured out on Jesus' feet. He sees this as something that should put, be put in the coffers, that should be put in the money bag and, and, and used for, worst case, for what Judas wanted to steal from the bag. But best case, maybe they use it for another year of Jesus' ministry. It's a year's worth of wages. Maybe they put it in for ministry. They put it in for for what Jesus is going to do. Or maybe they put it in for Jesus' position to eventually build up, right? They wanted Jesus to be a king. He's going to need some money down the road. See, this for Judas is the moment that it becomes clear that Judas doesn't see or doesn't understand what Jesus had been trying to do to tell them all along. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe he does understand. Maybe in that room when Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified, maybe Judas is the only one who's listening. And all of a sudden, Judas realizes that my purposes for being in this ministry, for my purposes for being here are not matching with this guy's anymore. In fact, he's talking about not being here next week. He's talking about being crucified and being handed over. And Judas sees this as his opportunity to get what Judas can get from the ministry of Jesus. This is a guy who had followed him for three years. This is a guy who had given up three years of his time to follow Jesus in his ministry. And you know what he ends up getting out of Jesus' death? 30 pieces of silver. 
I was curious this week, and I know that there are different, the, the only thing that, that it tells us is 30 silver coins was the amount. There's different silver coins in that time, so I looked it up, and the best guess at how much money this would be in 2021, what are we talking about here? You know about how much it would be? Somewhere between three and $400 for betraying Jesus. For handing over the guy that you followed for three years for him to be killed. You see, his eyes were not, his eyes were only on his own goals, his own desires, his own selfish gain. And when Jesus didn't suit his purposes anymore, He looked for an opportunity to hand him over so that he could at the very least get something out of this. And church, I know, I know there are people in the church today that are following after Jesus for what they might be able to get out of it because they're focused on their own. Their their eyes are on their own desires and not what God wants. You know, in in, uh, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby says this very thing about sin. It's a quote that I've had for about 10 years on an old green post-it note in my office. And Blackaby puts it this way, that sin is in essence a shift from God-centeredness to self-centeredness. You're no longer looking at what He wants for your life. You're looking at what we desire, what we want, where, where we would like these things to go. And yet look at Mary. Mary does the very opposite. And yet here's Mary, and, and she looks even, it's an even more stark contrast when you compare her to what Judas does, because Mary, with all these disciples around, her sister Martha is cleaning and doing the dishes and serving food. Uh, Lazarus is sitting there talking with Jesus. All the disciples are there talking about how much this perfume costs. And you know what Mary does? She has lined herself up perfectly with the purposes of Jesus. She may not know what's about to happen, and yet she seems to be, besides Jesus, she seems to be the only person in that room whose desires are lining up with God's desires. Look at Matthew 26, 12. Jesus says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Mary's listening. You know why Mary's listening? Do you know why Mary knows that Jesus is going to be crucified? Because Mary is spending time at Jesus' feet. These guys, these 12 guys are walking with Jesus from town to town for three years and they have no idea what's, ha- what's going to happen. And here comes Mary, this woman who, whose only purpose is to spend time at the master's feet. And guess what? She gets it. And she lines herself up, not with what she can get out of this arrangement. She lines herself up with what God wants to happen. You see, the interesting thing here is that both Mary and Judas, at opposite ends of the spectrum, they are both preparing for what God is about to do. They were both, in their own ways, helping to advance God's ultimate plan to save our souls. 
But Mary seems to be the only one around. Of all of those following Jesus, Mary seems to be the only one around who is focused on what God wanted to happen. Even Jesus' own disciples weren't seeing it. You know how this story ends? Let's close today by looking at the events of the last night of Jesus' life as recorded in Matthew chapter 26. This time, we're at the end of the chapter, Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. Pay attention to these words today. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged this signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you have come for, friend. And then the men men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Look at what he says in verse 54. But how then, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. Look at his purpose in 56. But this has all taken place so that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. Church, do you think there's any stopping the mission and the purpose of Jesus? All these things, Jesus says, Even Judas handing over a friend. All these things are happening because they were fulfilled. They're being fulfilled. They were were predicted to happen in Scripture. And you know what the very last line of this Scripture is? After Jesus says all this, after Jesus fulfills and mentions his purpose, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus is, is, has just laid it out. Jesus has just said, these are the things that God, that all these scriptures have been pointing to all this time. And they didn't get it. The disciples had been with Jesus for three years, and they still didn't understand why he had come. They tried to fight them off when they came to arrest Jesus. They're cutting off ears to try to stop people from what God is doing. Jesus, you see, Jesus had told them multiple times that he's going to lay down his life. He's preparing his disciples for what's coming. In fact, one of those times Matthew and Mark record, he tells us that Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter said, no, Jesus, don't be talking about this, that you're going to die. And you know what Jesus said to Peter? Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. And you know why? He says, because Peter, you don't have at heart the concerns of God, but the concerns of man. 
You're, you're, not, you're not concerned about the things of God. If you were concerned about the things of God, you would speed their coming because this is what God has ordained to happen. And that night... When Jesus is laying down his life, that night when Jesus is about to fulfill everything that's been told from the prophets and, and, and from the, all of Scripture, do you know what Jesus' closest followers do? They try to stop it. They try to stand in the way of God's will being done. Because their eyes were not on what God wanted to happen. Church, these are the 12 guys that had followed Jesus. These are the 12 guys that had heard Jesus teach. These are the 12 guys that should have been there with Mary in front of him at his feet. And they missed it. So what about for you today? What about for me today? What is the challenge for me? We're going to have a time of invitation. Chad and the band are going to lead us in a time where we're focusing our eyes upon Jesus because here today, church, is your choice. There really, we can make a big deal out of it, but really it's two options. Either your life is lined up with what God desires for your life that your life would be a vessel through which God can do what He is going to do. Or else you're concerned with your own desires. Your own best ideas. Your own best practices. Your own whatever I would do on my own. There's really only two choices. And so today, we can look and what we can get out of it, we can look at Jesus and we can say, what, what does this mean for me? Or we can throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and ask him to show us. We can come to Jesus' feet. And by spending time with Jesus, we line up our lives with him. Father, today, Father, today we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us of selfishness. Forgive us of sin. Forgive us of the times that we would try to profit from what you're doing. That we would try to exalt ourselves. That we would try to be lifted up when you should be lifted up. And God, today, help us line ourselves back up. God, just bring us back to your feet. That we would know you. That we would desire what you would do in our lives. And Father, that we would find that being yielded to you is the only way, is the only way that that you can work through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The invitation is open.